Good evening. Good to see everyone. I, I feel like I, I have to tell you, you probably could guess this, but um, as we go through this quarter, I'm uncomfortable, nervous talking about this, not just because it's controversial, that's part of it, um, but because it's very personal and because there are deep wounds in this room, aren't there? around these topics. There are deep, deep wounds, and there are struggles, and there are questions, and there are very few things that are more challenging to navigate in any, in any era, in any culture, um, but maybe particularly in ours. Um, and so I, I feel like where we started last week was necessary. You might have confused some of you. Like, hey, I thought we were talking about sexuality and we started with a lesson about God's love. Um, but I, I feel like that's so important and necessary and where we will continue to keep coming back to every single week to remind us of this overarching foundational idea and truth that only God's love only God's love can teach us how to truly love and be loved. That's how we ended last week, that it's, it's God's love that can teach us how to be loved and how to show love to other people because that's really what we desire, isn't it? We want to be loved. We want to be loved and we want to love other people. And really, we have to understand that it's only in receiving the love of God, knowing the love of God, and orienting our life around his love, it's only in doing that that we can really be loved and love other people the way that we need to and the way that we want to. And so we want to focus this entire series of lessons on the importance of, the significance of orienting our life around the one who loves us and gave his son for us. And only in doing that can we begin to sort of put the rest of the pieces of the puzzle together? I want to start tonight, though, by, by sharing this, and I've shared this before, but two of the primary reasons I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and I, I start here tonight because that, that's really what I'm, I'm kind of assuming we're, we're talking about here. If we're talking about sexual ethics, if we're talking about what's right and wrong behavior for people... We're really here specifically talking about as followers of Jesus, or why is it that I think this way about sexuality? Well, I think this way about sexuality because I'm a follower of Jesus, and I choose to be a follower of Jesus. Now, I'm assuming you may be choosing to follow Jesus, but maybe that's a wrong assumption. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what I, what I hope that over the course of these lessons, you'll understand why followers of Jesus have a certain particular unique perspective on sexuality and why that might be compelling to you to consider. But first, I want you to consider this. Why is it that I choose to follow Jesus? Maybe this is similar to why you choose to follow Jesus, but for me, there's two primary reasons. The first one is that there's very strong evidence to support the resurrection of Jesus. And if that's true, if that's true, if 2,000 years ago a Jewish rabbi said that he was God in the flesh, that he was Yahweh, that he was crucified, that he was raised from the dead, and that he ascended to the right hand of his heavenly Father, 
If that is true, if the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is true, if he's right now reigning at the right hand of God, well, that changes everything. Changes everything. It changes how I, I think about right and wrong. It changes how I think about what I'm doing here, what my purpose is, what my destiny is. So the resurrection of Jesus is the primary reason that I'm a follower of Jesus. But the second reason, and very close for me, is this. The second reason is that, there it is. Yep. No other world, nope, sorry, you guys are going to have to do it, sorry. This, I was testing the the uh, controller, and it doesn't work real well. Okay, so no other worldview assigns such an appropriately high value to all human beings. Just kind of want to sit with that for a second, because this is what we're going to spend a lot of time tonight talking about. No other worldview assigns such an appropriately high value to all human beings. And I say appropriately high because we, we sort of instinctively understand that human beings are significant and valuable and important, don't we? I mean, even the worldviews that say, you know, I, I think there's no God, there's no purpose, we're all just kind of evolved from pond scum, you know, we're just sort of grown-up versions of pond scum, and we, we're really just material things, we're just sort of meat machines, and there's really no purpose to us, no significance to us, no meaning to life. The people that have those perspectives and worldviews, I, I would pose that worldview because they actually treat other human beings usually like they're valuable and important. Because we instinctively know there's something special and significant about human beings. That human life is actually something valuable, something purposeful. And different worldviews assign different values to human life. Most, most worldviews assign some value to human life, but nothing. I, I would challenge you to find a worldview that assigns a more significant and valuable purpose to human life than Christianity does. Christianity assigns such an appropriately high value to human life. And I say that, and we start this conversation about sexuality here because, because when it comes to what's right and wrong, particularly when it comes to what's right and wrong about sexuality, well, it depends on what you think a human being is. What do you think a human is? What, what do you think a human being is designed to do? Or do you think a human being is designed at all? If you believe that, that a human being is designed and has purpose and has value and has meaning, what is the value? What is the meaning? What is the significance of a human being? And, and if we... If we have this conversation, the only way to really have this conversation in regards to right and wrong as it pertains to human sexuality, it has to flow from the idea of what we think it means to be human. So we have to go all the way back, and we, we spoke briefly about this last week, but go all the way back to the creation account, Genesis chapter 1, because Genesis chapter 1 tells us why human beings are so very valuable and the purpose 
of human beings. Look at Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We could spend about a year or more right here in that one text, those two verses. But let's kind of walk through that. just three things. One, God created us. God created us, which means a couple of different things. One, we, we didn't come from nothing. We're not an accident. We believe, those of us that embrace a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, those of us that believe that this is the story of who we are and where we came from and what it is that we're supposed to be doing, we believe that we didn't come from nothing, but we were created. Not only that, but we didn't create ourselves. You didn't create yourself. No matter what you think, no matter how much you think you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, no matter how many times we use phrases like a self-made man, it's not true. You, you didn't make yourself. There is no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. You did not create you. And if that's true, if that's true that you didn't create you, then it also means that you don't get to assign purpose and value and meaning to you, he does. That's a creator's prerogative, isn't it? It is the creator's prerogative to assign value and meaning and purpose. You don't get to decide for yourself, what, what, is, what is my meaning? What is my purpose? What is my value? You didn't make you. Human beings didn't make themselves. Human beings were created by God, and God gets to decide what is their purpose, what is their meaning, what is their value, what is their worth, what is their identity. Secondly, God created human beings, and God created human beings in his own image. Now, that doesn't mean that we look like God. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean we look like God, because we all look different, don't we? We all look a little bit different. It doesn't mean we look like God. It means that we reflect God. We reflect God. And our purpose and meaning and value and identity is tied up in that truth and reality that we are God's image bearers. Now, notice, notice in the text, this isn't something that we do as much as it is something that we are. It is something that we are. You are, a human being is an image bearer of God, reflects something of God into the world. Your value, your worth, your identity, your destiny, your purpose, your meaning, your value comes from that reality. And again, it's not about your skill or your ability or your knowledge, what you can do or what you can't do. It's about what you are. This is what a human being is. Not because you said so about yourself, not because somebody else thinks so about you, but because the creator said this about every single human being, that every single human being is his image bearer. Now, also notice that God created us 
God created us in his image, and God created us in his image as embodied beings. He created them male and female with sexuality, embodied beings. See, there's, there's sort of different ways that people think about what it means to be a human. One sort of naturalistic, materialistic worldview just sees people as, again, as just a bunch of meat, as just material things. So there's the materialism, but then on the other end of the spectrum, there's sort of this dualism. And this dualism says, well, yes, there is this immaterial, immaterial part of us that is not material, and, and that immaterial part of us, that's what's really important, our thoughts, our conscience, our spirit, that's what's really important. But the biblical story says that human beings are created embodied beings, embodied beings, not, not disembodied beings, you're not just a, a spirit. You're not Casper the friendly ghost that just happens to be inside of a material body for the time being. A human being is embodied. That's what we were created to be. We were created by God, created by God to be his image bearers, created by God to be his image bearers as embodied beings embodied beings. Now, keep reading to the next chapter, chapter 2 and verse 7. Here's how the King James reads Genesis 2 and verse 7 to tell us more about what it means to be human. The Lord, for, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living, what's the word, church? Soul. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, is this talking about disembodied spirits here? No. He's talking about what he formed out of the dirt, that he made material man out of the material ground and breathed into him the breath of life, animated him, brought him to life. And this living, breathing, embodied being is a soul, a soul. The Hebrew word is nefesh, nefesh. The, the Hebrew idea of a soul the biblical idea of a soul is not primarily about disembodied spirits. I know that tends to be what you think of when you think of a soul. There was even a movie not too long ago, a cartoon, about it's called soul. And it's all about how these disembodied spirits get sent down into bodies. That's not the biblical story. The biblical story is that a human soul is an embodied person. Listen to the way another translation puts the same verse. Then the Lord God took dust from the ground and formed a man from it. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nose, and the man became a living person. That's what soul means. Soul means person or being. Some translations may say creature. That's what a, that's what a soul is. It's a person. We still use that kind of language when we talk about ships and planes, and we say there are 37 souls on board, right? 37 souls on board. We don't mean there's 37 disembodied spirits on board. We mean there's 37 bodies because that's what a human is. A human is embodied. Now, it's true. God can preserve your existence even after your body dies. We'll talk more about resurrection in a minute, but, but this is fundamental to understanding what a human is. Here's how we could summarize it. A human soul comes into existence 
as a material body formed by God, brought to life by God's immaterial breath, and commissioned as God's image bearer. If we read the creation account, not just as, well, that's something that happened one time with Adam and Eve, but as this is normative, this is what it means to be human. What it means to be human is that the human soul is created as a material body that has been formed by God, that God has breathed into the animating breath of life, brought that body to life, and that embodied person, being, soul, is commissioned to be his image bearer. Regardless of what they look like, their ethnicity, their skin color, the language they speak, what they're able to do, what they're not able to do, how they think, how they are incapable of thought. Regardless of their, their ability or lack of ability or what they can do or what they can't do, this is what a human is. Now that, that affects how we think about all kinds of current cultural issues, doesn't it? What about, what about human bodies in the womb? What about human bodies who are getting old and frail? What about what we do with our human bodies sexually? See, the biblical story is not just about your mind. I know we've, we've sort of convinced ourselves that religion is just about what you think or just about what you feel, or just about where your disembodied spirit is going to go when you die. But the biblical story isn't like that. Our worldview isn't like that. It's very much an embodied story. I mean, our Savior became human, became human like us, embodied, embodied. And God created human beings to be his embodied image bearers. Now, when you believe that this is what humans are, it affects what you believe humans can do, or should do, or must do. So when we go back to where we were last week, Romans chapter 1, look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 22, a passage, again, we, we spent some time in last week. Paul says, claiming to be wise, humans, especially Gentile humans, became fools, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their, what? Their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, again, this describes all of us. When we don't orient our life around our creator, when we don't live our life as the commissioned image bearers of the creator God, and we just worship the creature or the creation instead of the creator, well, then our life is all out of kilter. And one of the things that we do is we dishonor our bodies with ourselves. Again, another translation says in verse 24, here's how another translation puts it. Because they did these things, God left them and let them go their sinful way, wanting only to do evil. As a result, they became full of sexual sin, using their bodies wrongly with each other. Sexual sin is particularly called a wrong way of using your body. Now, in the context, Paul's going to talk about 
same-sex relationships and how human beings have, have engaged in same-sex relationships and how that is a wrong way to use the human body. But as we go through scripture, there's all kinds of wrong ways to use the human body. Using your eyes to lust after someone else's human body it's a wrong way. It's a dishonoring way to use your body and to use someone else's body in an objectifying way. Sleeping with someone that you're not married to is a wrong way of using the human body. Being married to someone and then sleeping with someone else, that's a wrong way to use the human body. Paul uses these things as an example to say the entire world, because they didn't orient their life around God, they have used their bodies wrongly. Now, I mean, let's just acknowledge just how, just how bold of a statement that is, particularly in our culture, isn't it? To say you're using your body wrong? Wait a second. Who are you to tell me I'm using my body wrong? We live in a culture that says I can do whatever I want with my body. It's mine. It's mine. If I want to do this with my body, I can do this with my body. If I want to look at this with my eyes, I can look at this with my eyes. If I want to touch this, if I want to go there, if I want to do this, it's my body. I can do with it as I please. Did you make it? Did you make it? Did you create it? Did you form it? Did you give your body purpose and meaning and value? The truth is you didn't, right? We didn't. I didn't. I was given this body, and then I chose to use my body wrongly. And, and Paul will go on to say that the consequence of that, of using your body wrongly, and all of humanity, not just you or me, but all humans using their body wrongly, what happens is we bring death into our bodies. And whether you acknowledge that reality or not, whether you buy into the biblical story or not, you know that part is true, don't you? We've all brought death into our bodies, not, not just us personally. You're not going to die because of your sexual sin, probably, but because of all humanity's sin. Because Adam and Eve, and then every one of us thereafter, opened the door to sin. We brought sin into our bodies because we used our bodies wrongly. And all of us, all of us have this problem, not just in our mind or our spirit, but in our very being. Our body is dead. It's dead. Death got brought into the world because of sin. And then humanity continued to perpetuate that problem. So, I mean, we could just stop here and say, okay, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. My I used my body wrong. Every, every human used their body wrong. We defiled our bodies, and so we're going to die. Okay, that could be the end of the story. That's the bad news of the story, right? But the good news of the story is Jesus offers to purify your body, cleanse your body, forgive the members of your body, and, and free you from the curse of death. Free you from the curse of death. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 10. Romans 8 verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal, what, church? Bodies. He will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So, number one, the human body, every human body, because of sin, not, not, again, not just personal sin, 
But because of our collective sin, every human body has death in it. And we all, we all participated in that sin. And we defiled our bodies. We used our bodies wrongly. We said, it's my body. I can do with it as I please. And God said, actually, no. I, I made that body to be an image bearer for me. I commissioned that body to have a special purpose in the world, to have a special meaning, to have a special value, to have a special calling. And then you used it in a way that dishonored or wrongly used your body and you brought death into your body. But those of us who are Christians, we don't just have death in our bodies, we have life in our bodies too. Because in our bodies is not just death, in our bodies as Christians is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is life in us. And the Spirit of God has already come into our very bodies, which means that now not only are we image bearers of God, but now as Christians, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. So we are renewed in our purpose and our meaning. When we were baptized into Jesus, our body, our body was cleansed. And the Spirit came to dwell inside of our bodies. And we became temples of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, because that's true, because you don't just have death in you, you have life in you. When you are raised from the dead, you will be raised from the dead the way Jesus was raised from the dead. See, it's not just your, your spirit that's going to be saved. It's your mortal body. This mortal body that you have, it's going to be transformed, don't worry. It's not going to have all the problems that it has now. But this mortal body of ours is going to be raised from the dead. It's special. And, and I don't know about you, but I want my body to last forever. And the only way to do that is to walk by the Spirit who's been given to us. Listen to some of the other things he says in the same, in the same letter, Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. Do not offer the parts of your body to serve sin as things to be used in doing evil. Instead, offer yourselves to God as people who have died when you were baptized, and now you live. Offer the parts of your body to God to be used in doing good. Sin will not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. See, it changes everything, doesn't it? What do you think the human body is? Do you think it's your personal playground? Most of us have at one point or another, haven't we? Thought that we could do with it as we please because it's ours. And we live in a culture that says it's yours. Do with it as you want. Whatever makes you happy, you do that. If, you, if it makes you happy to eat this, then eat that. If it makes you happy to drink that, then drink that. Smoke that. Go there. Do that. Whatever you want to do, whatever makes you happy. And God says, no. Don't you understand? You are much more precious than that. You are much more valuable than that. And he didn't treat us like garbage and just throw us away. He redeemed us. And he cleansed us and he purified us. And now he made every single member of your body, every body part that you have. If you're a Christian, it's cleansed, it's made holy. And God says, now use it as instruments, as tools of righteousness. Do good things with it. Do good things with it. Because you're an image bearer, but now you're also the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the members of your body have been made holy and pure. Look at what he says in chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of... That's what all of this is about. It's not about beating somebody over the head and saying, you have to follow the Christian rules for sexuality. It's, 
It's not how it works. It's about saying we've all broken the rules. And now by the mercy of God, he wants to offer you redemption and life and life eternal. He wants to raise your dead body from the, from the grave so that you can live forever with him and his kingdom. And Paul says, based on these mercies, based on God's love, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So now, now we get to decide. We get to decide if we are compelled by the love of God, by the creator that bestowed on us more value and worth than we could possibly imagine in the beginning, and then we defiled our bodies by misusing them, and he continued to show us mercy by cleansing us and purifying us and offering to give us his life-giving spirit within us and raise us from the dead forever, we have to decide, does that compel you? If that compels you, if you're compelled by the mercies of God, then offer your body as a living sacrifice to him. And say to God, this, this body belongs to you. It didn't again. I want to present my body to you as a living sacrifice. Paul says, this is like your priestly service. You get to be a priest in service of the most loving and most high God. And you get to, by your own volition, based on, compelled by his, his mercy and love, bring your own body and say it's yours. Now, what does that look like? What does this verse look like in practice? It looks like all kinds of things, doesn't it? It's daily life. It's using your hands to serve somebody who's in need. It's saying these hands are not for my own pleasure. These hands are for blessing others. So using your hands to, to serve and help people in need. It might look like going to a foreign country where it's illegal to be a follower of Jesus and spread the gospel and allowing yourself to be arrested and beaten and martyred. That might be what it looks like to present your body as a living sacrifice. It may look like that you, you don't get married and you live, a, you live a, a single life so that you can devote your life and your service and your time and your energy and your resources to the kingdom of God. It may look like you get married and you, you use your marriage to be this living picture of Jesus and the church of selfless love. It may look like you use your body to, to make babies with your spouse and raise children to follow Jesus. There are all kinds of ways, but it's about rethinking what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be an embodied person? What does it mean for my body to be cleansed and purified and redeemed by God's love? And what does it look like for me to present my body to God, to say, it's not mine anymore. I surrender it to you. I like to have a concluding statement, and I usually like it to be brief. This is my attempt at brevity today. It's not very brief. I apologize. But I wanted to say all of this. The Christian view of sexuality is not simply a set of rules. So much of that, we just stop right there. It's not simply a set of rules. It is a unique understanding of what the human body is, what it's for, how it is defiled by sin, how it is redeemed by God's love, how it becomes a temple for God's spirit, and how it is to be used in God's service, and how it will be raised to live forever. I'm not interested, 
I'm not interested in a sexual ethic that is just about rules. That's not a big enough picture. It's not a compelling picture. I'm not interested in just telling people what you're not allowed to do sexually or what you must do sexually. I'm interested in this big picture story that the Bible gives us about what does it mean to be human? What, does, what is the human body for? What is the purpose of the human body? How, how does God redeem my human body? And how one day will he raise my human body from the dead? This is the story that you get to decide Nobody's forcing you to be a part of this story, but you get to decide whether or not you want to be a part of this story. Live forever, have your body redeemed, and present it to God as a living sacrifice. That, that's your decision. And I pray that the mercies of God, that they, that they drive us and compel us and pull us and show us what a wonderful life it is when we allow God to reclaim our bodies including our sexuality. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we embrace this wonderful good news of what you have done to redeem us from sin and death, to reclaim not just our minds or our spirits, but our very bodies. And Father, we pray that you help us even now through the Spirit to surrender our bodies and our sexuality to you, to turn them over to you. And then, Father, to share this good news with others, with our, with our kids, with our parents, with our brothers and sisters, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, of what a good God you are. And may we be changed and transformed by your love that you've shown us in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.